0: So this morning we're going to continue our series made for mission and answer the question what is my message and we're going to be in Mark chapter five if you want to turn there in your Bible on the back of your bulletin is all are all the other scriptures we're going to be looking at if you want to keep up and get a little bit ahead as we're getting ready to uh, read uh, directly from the Bible and Mark chapter five deals with Jesus's encounter with a demonically possessed man and when we read this passage. Or any other scripture in the Bible, we're seeing it from an eyewitness viewpoint of the people who are actually there. So, in other words, John Mark, one of Jesus' early followers, probably got his information from Peter, who was the first or one of the first hand witnesses of these events. And we see, and we read the Bible, we're always seeing these first hand accounts of what happened. So I want to do something a little bit differently. When I study the Bible, I try to look at the verses through everybody's angle. And we're going to look at it this morning through how it must have been for this demonically possessed man. And we're going to read um, a fictitious example of, of something he might have said about his life up until that point. So let's hear his story. I have shared my story several hundred times, but it never gets old. I start by telling about the day I first heard the voices. These voices were so real and so near that I turned around and I thought somebody was, was whispering in my ear. And it took me almost a full day to realize that this voice was coming from within my own mind. And this voice was not one that I wanted to hear. It said all kinds of horrible things about me. And it would not leave me alone. It was constantly nagging at me. Then one voice this or one day this voice took control of my mind and even took control of my mouth and made me speak random, horrible, and blasphemous and crazy things. And there was nothing I could do to stop it. It just came out of me. I couldn't even ask for help because every time I opened my mouth, these horrible things I would say would make people run away from me and not want to be anywhere near me. I had already started to lose all hope. When more voices took over control of my body to that point that I just became uncontrollable and even my family finally grabbed me and chained me up and took me out to the cemetery and chained me there. Then one day I got out of my chains and I was I was walking along the seashore. And for the first time I noticed something about these voices. These voices sounded nervous. I would think even that these voices sounded like they were a little afraid. And I looked out onto the Sea of Galilee and I saw a boat approaching the shore. And these voices were whispering to each other about a person who was in that boat. Somebody named Jesus. And the the voices inside my head were terrified of this name and this man. The voices immediately came out and they tried to take control of me and get me to run away as far away as I could from the shore and get away from this man called Jesus. But I I grasped whatever little bit of sanity I had left and I made myself stand there until this man named Jesus came and got off the boat. Because I knew that these voices were afraid of this man. And if these voices were afraid of this man, I knew this was somebody I needed to meet. This morning, we're in week three of our series, titled Made for Mission. A few weeks ago, we kicked it off by talking about We Are Called. Last week, we talked about what is my mission, and we shared that ultimately our mission in life is Jesus' mission. And it should be our first priority in life, and everything within our life should revolve around that. So we've discovered that God has called us to a mission. We've discovered what that mission is. So today we're going to be spending time answering the question, so what's my message regarding this mission? And if you are a Christian here in this room today, this is the heart of following Jesus. This, this mission and message you are supposed to have is at the heart of following our Savior. And this part of your mission is not something that is going to be natural for you. It's something that you must be intentional about or you're going to miss the reason that God called you in the first place. The reason that he equipped you and the reason that he has put you right where you are in life this morning. But it's one of the hardest things to do. In school, I remember, I think I was in 10th grade, and I had to give an oral report of a, a paper I had written. And it was probably the most frightening thing I would ever done in my life up to that point. I was shaking, I was sweating, I wanted to run away. I was afraid I was going to stand in front of all these people and look really stupid. So I picked this to be my life mission. <laughs> speak in front of people every, every week. But does that describe you or a little bit? talking with people? Is this how you feel when the Holy Spirit prompts you to tell somebody about Jesus? Does it seem like you can't even just get, or get the words out? It feels like your, your brain turns to butter and you can't even tell what the Holy Book of Christianity is? It's easy to talk about virtually anything else. We want to talk about the Packers. We can name people that are in the positions. We want to talk about farming. We know exactly what we're talking about in this community. But when it's something faith based, we freeze up. I know because I've been there. And if you can relate to what I'm describing this morning, then this message is for you and it should greatly encourage you. So, we're going to look at this story of the demonic man from two different perspectives. As I I mentioned on the back of your bulletin, you have the scriptures. We're going to start in Mark chapter 5, and later we're going to transition over to Luke 8. If you want to turn there in your Bible and kind of stick your finger in there as a placeholder. In Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1 and 2, it says, They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Now a little bit of context about this opening verse. The fact that they went across the Sea of Galilee, is hugely significant in their culture. The Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River that flows out the bottom of the Sea of Galilee is the natural dividing line between Israel and everyone else, the pagan nations that surrounded them. So the fact that they went all the way across the Sea of Galilee to a pagan area is very significant because Jewish people did not do that. The people that existed over there were people that were not cleared out of the promised land during Joshua's campaign. You remember way back in the Old Testament, God tells Joshua, get everybody out of this land that I'm giving you. The Israelites were somewhat disobedient in that area, and they let some people stay. Um, Then this area has been conquered and everything else. So the Jewish people, who were only supposed to marry within that tribe of Judaism, started intermarrying with everybody else. So the people there were not even considered Jews anymore. And in fact, because they had intermarried with, with the pagan people around them, they were even worse than not being Jews. They were worse than Gentiles. So these are the lowest of the lowest people that could be on the planet at that time in the eyes of a righteous Jew. This is, this is the world they existed in. So the fact that Jesus used this area to go to to minister is very, very significant. So that's the first challenge when it comes to our message. Are we willing to go and share this mission, and even share our lives with people that may be from the wrong side of the tracks, who may be from those areas that, that we don't want to have anything to do with, who may be a person that comes from the wrong socioeconomic um, class, or the wrong race, or the wrong culture. Is this, is this something that we are willing to do? Jesus' first brief missionary trip here didn't start off all that well. I mean, think about this. The disciples had to be thinking all the way across the lake, we're not even supposed to visit these people. We're not supposed to be anywhere around them. And Jesus is leading us to, 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 to minister to them? Doesn't he know what these people are like? Then they get there. It wasn't all sunshines and puppy dog kisses when they got there. The first person of these people that they're not supposed to even associate with that meets them on the beast is a naked, demonically possessed man. They must have been thinking, this place is even worse than we thought. We knew these people were bad, but this is what they're like? It's like, get back in the boat, run away. That's what had to be going through their minds at this point. But Jesus didn't react that way. Check out what happens next in Mark 3. 5, chapter 3, the man, or this man, lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, that he would cry out and cut himself with stones." Now, let's be honest. If this was somebody who was sitting right outside our church door here, we probably would be calling 911, wouldn't we? This is a naked guy filled with cuts, hasn't bathed in a year, sitting at you know, out here in public, cutting himself with stones and screaming all kinds of vile stuff. So we're probably going to call the police to come and deal with this person. But I loved how Jesus viewed him. Most of us would look at him and think, wow, he's he's just too far gone. And obviously he must have rejected God at some point in his life, and that's that's why he's like this. But I want to remind everyone that just because someone rejected God at some point in their life doesn't mean they'll reject them today. It doesn't even mean they'll reject God tomorrow. A A recent study showed that an average person who receives Christ has already had seventeen unique spiritual co- encounters before he actually or he or she will actually accept Christ and start following Jesus. And looking at my own life, I would say that's true. Dozens and dozens of people spoke about Jesus into my life before I accepted him and started to follow him as my Lord and my Savior. And I would imagine that every all seven, or however many people it was that spoke, probably thought that they wasted their time. They thought, probably thought they were utter abject failures in trying to lead me to Jesus Christ. But what they did is they planted a seed. They planted a seed that the Holy Spirit continued to water, the Holy Spirit continued to work on, until finally, on the day of salvation, that seed clicked and started to produce and grow, and, and now is producing fruit. That was a spiritual reality. Because of their obedience, that seed and God's timing came to life. Listen, you have no idea. I have no idea. We really as human beings, with our limited comprehension, have no idea where we fit in to the salvation history of people's lives and the impact of our words to them. God is far more concerned with our obedience than he is with our impact. Because God can work with our obedience. We're not responsible for the impact. We're not responsible for, for down the road what might happen. We are responsible in the here and now to share this message with as many people as we can. Our job is to obey and plant seeds. It's God's job to harvest that seed. You know, we live in an agricultural setting. Let's say it's mid-July and a farmer is looking out in his cornfield and nothing is happening. And he comes to church for prayer and he says, you know, can, can this church pray for me? I'm looking out at my cornfield and nothing is happening. And maybe some, of the, maybe some of the farmers here or some of the people who know about this, they say, well, what kind of seed did you plant this year? Or, or you know, when did you plant? Maybe it's just, it's just not coming up because you planted late or something. And, and the farmer says, well, I didn't plant any seed this year. Well, how do you expect a harvest if you didn't plant any seed? That would just be obvious. How do we expect Jesus to change people's lives if we never go out and plant seed? The same principle applies to the church. We can't ask God to give us a harvest here in Trempealeau County if we're not purposely and intentionally out there spreading seed. We're going to go over to Luke chapter 8. And continue the story of this demonic man. Luke chapter 8, verse 28. Says, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Notice the man's question. What do you want with me? You know, I mentioned as as I read scriptures, I try to put myself in other people's shoes so I can understand where they're coming from. So let's put ourselves in this man's shoes for a moment. He fully expects Jesus to do something horrible for him, or to him. The man fully expects some sort of torture. Why would he think that? Because that's all he's ever known. Since this demon has come within him, he's lived in a constant state of torment. And that's the condition of those who don't know Jesus today. They may look put together. They may look like they're wealthy and prosperous and everything else. But reality, when they lay their head on the pillow every night, they are living in a sense of despair. They're living in a sense of hopelessness. Trust me, I see them all the time in my various jobs. They may have the highest position in the community and they show up at the ER or they show up on the ambulance or they show up in the fire department suicidal and without hope. Every experience this man has ever had has only been bad. But let's look and see how Jesus responds. In Luke 8, verse 30, Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. What is your name? Jesus wanted to know his name? Notice the man is so overwhelmed by demons, he doesn't even remember what his real name is anymore. And all he can say is Legion, for there are many demons within me. Can someone's life seem so hopeless that they forget their identity in God and label themselves something different something like ugly or worthless alone evil not worthy think about that for a moment ask yourself do you know a person who is carrying a label in their life in their life and needs you to speak their name and tell them who they really are in Jesus Maybe this person is carrying a label of of an addict. Or maybe they were a prostitute or a sexual slave of some type. Adulterer or adulteress. Maybe they carry the title of gay or lesbian. Transgender. Anything that this world tries to explain and give them to hold on to and, and tell them who they are. But what they really need to hear is the name and the character and the plan that God has for their life. Jesus never calls a person by their problems. He never looks down at you and says, Hey, loser, I'm going to try to use you today. He calls us according to what we can be in Him and according to what He has made us to be. Jesus makes all things new for those who surrender to Him. In Luke 8, 32-33, it says that a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. And what these verses show us is the ultimate end To anything not under or brought under the control of Jesus, and that is death. This man gets to see right in front of them where the voices in his head were leading them, him the whole time, into suicide, into death, into uh, forever spiritual torment. You know what the world doesn't realize or will never admit to is that all these social justice causes that are out there right now are placing their hope in to bring about a more kind and just society. They're they're trusting all in that, but let me tell you, they're deceived. They're putting their, their eyes on the wrong thing. Because anything not brought under the control of Jesus leads to death. If Jesus is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. We have to remember that as Christians. You can't have Jesus in this box over here and and the world in this box over here, and hopefully they'll never meet. Jesus came to destroy your boxes. He wants to be part of everything in your life. And apart from God's grace, any compromise can leave you wide open for demonic attack. It may not get to the, the point of where this man is, but it, that's where Satan wants to lead you. He hates you. Satan has a horrible plan for your life. And we see it in the, the life of the demonic man where he finally got to. John 10.10 10 says that Jesus said, the thief, meaning the devil, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I, Jesus, have come to give you life and life to the full. The demonic man was Standing in presence of the Savior. And he's starting to realize this. And he asked Jesus, what do you want with me? And Jesus answers him. He goes, I want to know your name. I want to know exactly who you really are, exactly what I made you to be. I need you to see this and realize this. And he said, I want to help you. I want to help restore what the enemy has tried to strip away from you. And this had to be earth-shaking for this man. Everyone else he has ever known wanted to bind him, wanted to keep him away, but Jesus came to free him and draw him close. You see, Jesus cared infinitely more about the man than he did the man's mess. He wanted to fix it, but he cared more about a man. And think about this. This wasn't a nice clean exorcism, where Jesus came in and said, gone. This was pretty messy, if you think about it. The, someone's whole livelihood and possibly food supply for the winter was wiped out. A modern way of looking at this would be me coming to your house, burning it down, trashing your car to save the worst person in town. That, that's exactly what Jesus did. In this situation. But to Jesus, it's an easy decision. This man's life, and even more importantly, his soul, was worth it. Jesus shows he cares even when it gets messy. Even if it's not the popular decision or he might get criticism for it, he is still going to do whatever it takes to bring a person into salvation. Continuing on in Luke chapter 8, 34 and 35. When those tending to pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now, in case you forgot, this man is completely nuts, right? Completely insane. He's running around town naked, screaming the worst profanity blasphemy and filth that you can imagine. And I'm not saying that necessarily you run up to those people and give them a hug. Because that can, because some of these people can be very dangerous. I mean, be safe, but I just want you to view people who are like that maybe a little bit more different. Differently. Maybe it's that person, maybe he's a neighbor and he's always oh, making fun of you going to church. Maybe it's a neighbor who, who insists on, on blasting death metal in the middle of the night. Maybe it's, it's someone who's always partying and always mocking your decision to follow Jesus. Start looking at them the way Jesus looks at them. In the early days of me being a paramedic in Lake Geneva, we got called to a residence. For, for a patient under Chapter 51, it means that a, a patient that's involuntarily about to be committed to a, a mental health facility. And when we got there, the officers met us at the door and said, Okay, grab your leather restraints. Okay, grab the spit net, which is a net that goes over so they can't spit on you. It goes over their head. And then something to sedate her because she's totally out of control. She's already clawed us. She's already kicked us. She's already spit on us. She's already done all kinds of of vile things to us and threatened the life of anybody who comes anywhere near her. So we were just waiting for you to get here so we didn't have to to basically go hands-on and almost beat her up to get her into submission. So we gathered our supplies. We went into the house, and I found this woman sitting in the back of her living room. She was naked, sitting on the floor, glaring at us. She profanely, very profanely, informed us that if we touched her, that she would do very bad things to us. That's the cleanest way I can describe it. So I squatted down about arm's length. When you deal with mental health people, you try to get down on their level so they're not threatened. I'm not standing over her doing that. I get down there. I told her, you know, we're, not, we're here to help you. We're not here to hurt you. We don't want to go hands-on with you. We don't want to have to grab you and struggle with you. I definitely don't want to have to put restraints on you, and I don't want to to stab you with a needle and and basically make you unconscious. I really don't want to do all that. It's more paperwork, okay, if I do that. It's a harder job for me if I do all this. I said, I'm here to help you. Can I at least just reach across and take your pulse because I want to see if you're clinically stable? And she nodded. She said, okay. She kind of looked down. And away from me. So I, I kind of lean in a little bit like this. And I touch her wrist, start feeling her pulse. Spits in my face. And it wasn't just like a, a little bit of spittle. It was bloody, gooey, you know, kind of all over the place. Well, this is about 3.30 in the morning. It's, I've been on duty for almost 72 hours. You can ask Tammy. I've, I used to pull shifts like that when I was in my 30s and stupid. I'm really tired. I am really crabby. And the last thing I want to deal with right now is this. Okay? I mean, getting spit in the face is not a pleasant thing to have happen. And the, and the officer pulls out his baton. Baton comes out. Officers, when you start getting lippy with them, I don't know if you've ever seen this, if you've ever watched Cops or anything on the TV, they will do what is, call, what is called a compliance strike which is basically they will whack you with their baton in an area that will cause a lot of pain but not really hurt you. And so he's getting ready to, to lay a compliance strike on this woman. And I'm ready to tell him, give her two more because she needs it. <laughs> but then something stopped me. I, said, I, I just held up my hand. I said, give me a second. And I, I, just, I wiped off the spit and I said, okay, are you done now? Did you get that out of your system? Are you done now? We're still here to help you." And she started crying. She cried and basically just collapsed on the floor, almost right into my arms. We were able to get her dressed. We were able to get her to lead her to the cot. I didn't have to sedate her, didn't have to restrain her. We talked all the way to the hospital. We were in the boonies. It took us 20 to 30 minutes to get to the hospital. And I talked to her all the way to the hospital. And I found out her story. She had actually been an EMT, and a nurse at one of the local hospitals for 20 years. She hurt her back, got addicted to prescription painkillers. She got so addicted to prescription drugs that she started stealing them at work and got caught. She got fired. She couldn't have access to prescriptions anymore, so she got on heroin. And this is where she's at now. And I spoke to her about the help that we're going to find for her, And I even prayed with her before I left the hospital. This is a personal example just from my life of what we see in this story. You know, this former demonic man probably didn't have any clothes with him, right? It wasn't like he was carrying a suitcase around. So where did he get these clothes he has on now? Jesus gave them. Probably gave up one of his own sets of clothes. Or maybe one of the disciples gave up their sets of clothes. And it's also noticeable to see that Jesus stayed with this man a while. He cared for this man. He not only restored his mind, his soul, and his spirit, but he also made sure his physical needs were taken care of. In other words, Jesus shows this man who has known only isolation that he wants to have an actual relationship with him. He's not just an evangelist that blows through town, tells people about Jesus, and, and takes off again. This was a, he was saying I want to know you and take care of even your basic needs. Continuing on in Luke chapter 8:36. It says those who had seen it told the people how the demonic or the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. You know, when I read this, I was thinking, how crazy is this? this? Jesus just performed an incredible miracle among them. So what happened here? Well, first, the people there just weren't ready to hear about the salvation message. Notice Jesus didn't try to reason with them. Notice Jesus didn't get into a, a theological argument with him. He didn't pull some miracle out of his back pocket or he didn't make the demons go into them as a punishment for their unbelief. He just said, okay. Okay, and he left. So here is the craziest implication about this. Jesus came all the way to the other side of the lake. By the way, if you read prior to this, came through a storm that almost killed them for one man one man Jesus believed this one demonically possessed guy was worth it that means you're worth it that means that person you know who dis, who treats you horribly is worth it Luke 8:38 and 39 says The man whom the demons had gone out for begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. So consider this. He's sending the man right back into an area that chained him up in a cemetery. All this man had to his name was a really bad reputation. You can't get a much worse reputation than this man probably had in his community. And he wants to go with Jesus. He wants to to, to hang with Jesus. He wants to serve Jesus. He wants to to, to carry Jesus' bag. Whatever he had to do, he just wants to be with Jesus. But Jesus sends him away. I mean, he's only been a Christian for about five and a half minutes at this point. You and I would think, you know, if if a guy's going to go into a mission field, he probably needs a little bit more training. He needs to go to Bible school. He needs to get a four-year degree. He needs to, to spend some time in personal mentorship. He needs all of these things. But Jesus gives him a mission. And it's a simple one. Simply return home and tell them how much God has done for you. And this man does that and more. The man shared his testimony all over the entire region. This area was called the Decapolis. And Greek Deca is ten, Opolis is city, ten cities together. So he goes and he preaches to all of these ten cities about what God did for him. And he went all over the place. So, and that's my the then that answers our main question this morning, which asks, Well, what is my message? Well, it's simple. Present yourself to your world that you live in right now, here in Whitehall and throughout Trempeleau County. Present yourself as a testimony to God's power and love. And tell people about Jesus and what He's done for you. That's the message you're supposed to be ready with because it's your story, it's your testimony. (coughs) And it's your gift to the world that can show other people that this Jesus is real. And this Jesus is willing to do the same thing for those in our lives that desperately need him. I'm going to close with one final thought. And it's a really cool one. So refocus your attention on me. I know we've been here a little bit, but refocus your attention just for a few moments because this is incredible. Jesus goes back to the area of the Decapolis About a year later. In Mark 731, it says that Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre, went through Sidon, down the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. So he's, he's made a whole circle here. Now he is back to this very area where he saved this man. In Mark chapter 8 we read that, it, that this year later, the feeding of the 4,000 happened, and guess where it was? In the area of the Decapolis. The same region that drove him out, that said they wanted nothing to do to him, managed to put together 4,000 just men to come out and meet Jesus. Why? Because this former demonically possessed man was faithful to share the message that Jesus had given him. 4,000 people in a year. I don't know how all that went down. When I I picture in my mind the feeding of the 4,000, I'm thinking of Jesus preaching to all these thousands of people. Remember, these are just the men. They could have had women and 10 children with them. So there's a lot of people there. He's preaching to these thousands of people. And I like to think that maybe after the crowds were getting up to go home, that the one man at the fringe of the crowd, that Jesus gets to see him, and it was that man. Look what I did for you. Look what I did for you, Jesus. And I imagine Jesus grabbing him in a big bear hug and saying, well done. The point is this, God, you have no idea the impact that God wants to make through you. Jesus took the craziest, most insecure guy in his area and used him to start a revival. So what's our excuse? What's our excuse not to share what Jesus has done in our lives? To the best of my knowledge, no one here spends their day running around the local cemetery or neighborhood naked. I know because I would have interacted with you as one of the firefighter paramedics in our community, so there's nobody out here doing this. So you have far less to overcome than, the guy, than this guy did. And he brought about one of the Bible's best spiritual awakenings. Stop saying, I can't. Because you know what? God can.